people want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Welcome, welcome, defenders of democracy. We're really happy you're with us here today. We have a return guest, Jessica Pishko. She's a lawyer and a writer who focuses on sheriff accountability. She's working on a book about sheriffs and the threat to democracy. And today she's going to talk to us about Biden's Safer America program at $37 billion. Will it make us safe? Jessica Welcome back to Outspoken. Hi, it's always good to talk to you. Well, thank you. Now, I know you have quite a few things to say about this particular uh, program, and let's start right in. Will it make us safer from your perspective? Well, it seems like it hardly will. Uh, (laughs) Of course, I am not one to, I think, you know, the first thing to set forth is that People who are interested in reducing the size of the police are also very interested in public safety, right? So there is no exclusion between wanting everyone to feel safe and secure and wanting to have fewer police and less violent police. I think that previously President Biden had passed a sort of suite of ideas about police reform that I think he hoped would intersect with this plan. But the truth is that the Safer American plan really allots, as you say, tens of billions of dollars to things like more police, more parts of crime prevention that have already been proven not to work, with very little accountability for how that money is being spent. And yet this program is supposed to promote accountability. What ways do you see that is not possible or you see that not happening? I think that President Biden is attempting to do something a little different than the 1994 crime bill, which we could talk a little bit about, that he did, you know, and so I I do want to be fair to the extent that he did try to pass uh, an executive order for accountable policing that he hoped would help. The main issue, as I see it, is that The Safer America plan largely is a grant of money to police departments. So most of what will happen is that cities and counties will apply for grants and receive that money. However, they are not held to the same standards set forth of the executive order. Um, They can be recommended, but he cannot force them to. And at the end of the day, uh, money is fungible. So whatever money you give law enforcement agencies, they will simply use as they see fit to do as they have done always. So, you know, the big problem is that with, I think, some 12,000 law enforcement agencies in the country, they are just getting money to do the same thing they've always done. And so there's a couple of different levels of this, right? First of all, if you could weigh in on the whole concept of military equipment, And how does this affect the purchase of military equipment? I think that while the program itself is not specifically identifying the sort of tanks, one of the things that it does do is set forth a lot of money for surveillance. This is clearly something that the federal government has decided would be productive. I do think that what we see in many, many law enforcement agencies is this shift away from sort of those large tank-like things to something like lots of surveillance, lots of mobile command centers, the sort of cameras, 
and the many things that they are using in communities to basically use it to watch over more people, which is a different kind of show of force. Like, while I think a tank we see and is very distressing, the kind of surveillance we're talking about is the sort of surveillance used overseas by the military against enemies. So it's still treating the people as if they are enemies. Now, that's an interesting parallel that you're drawing there, because you're talking about using military force in a military from a military point of view where it is assumed that these weapons are being used against enemies and they're now being obtained to be used for whom? The citizens? I mean, because are we not speaking about citizens, whether or not the citizens are criminals or not? Are they indeed the enemy of the country? Right. I think that that is right. That's really the very root of what other scholars have written very ably about this idea of like militarization of domestic law enforcement is that it does use what we might call counterinsurgency tactics against Again, as you point out, citizens and people living in our communities. So regardless of whether folks are breaking the law or not breaking the law or to what extent they may be breaking the law, we are treating them as if they are an enemy contingent. And the training, because this is what I understand from the Safer America program, is that training is supposed to be something that is somehow underwritten by these federal funds. And yet, I can't imagine that those who are being hired, and by the way, that's a big hiring program from people who are coming out of the military, where else are they going to work? This is what they have a training to do. They're trained to shoot to kill. I don't imagine that they've learned de-escalation as a technique since their very life is endangered by almost any member of the citizenry in another country, certainly due to what we've seen from terrorism. And yet these are the skills that we're seeing come back to the United States and then enfolded into what our police force and also, of course, our, our county police force, which are the sheriffs. How do you expect that that money on that federal level, how do you think that the states will access that cash? I mean, that's a really good point. The first thing I would point out is that a very small percent of the funding is allocated specifically for what we might call the sort of training that we want to see. So it's described as kind of the training required at the federal level, which is nowadays does include this sort of de-escalation style training and kind of setting aside whether or not this training works, which of which there's many questions about, it only allocates at the moment $1 billion. So that's $1 billion out of $37 billion mm. to do that sort of trading. So it's a very small slice of the overall plan, right? So if you're thinking about, like, what's the highest priority, that's obviously not the highest priority. Um, and again, the training is, as always, done. Generally, what tends to happen is that agencies apply for this funding and ask for this particular training, and then they hire external trainers to come in and do that training. Um, So there isn't necessarily one extremely high quality control. And then two, there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that this kind of training is particularly helpful, largely because this training doesn't have accountability attached to it. Officers, and this is sort of based on data of these types of trainings, which they have been happening for many years. This is not a novel concept, but if you go through these types of trainings, 
what you see is that officers are aware of the training. However, there is no accountability on the back end. There's no uh, promotion attached to doing well. There's no, like, bonuses or right, nothing in their job encourages them to use it. So I think the fact that, that the training is and isn't connected to their everyday jobs means that it doesn't get integrated into anyone's process. And at the point where they're interacting with folks on the street, right, that training is now very far away. I have read, and, and I'm not sure if you hadn't written about this, but what I had read was certainly in uh, many of the counties, certainly even here in California, that the constitutional sheriffs, uh, those who are members of the constitutional sheriff's organization, have now sort of outsourced themselves as being trainers and have marketed their services to particular counties to do this exact kind of training, among other kinds of training. And this certainly is a cause for concern, I think, from my point of view. What do you think about what's happening at the sheriff level, and what do you see happening here in California? I think that the constitutional sheriff training is, quote-unquote, certified. So what you, every state could certify their trainings as they see fit, and this is what California has a certification for their training. Right now, the constitutional sheriff training is certified in Texas and I think Nevada. So there's two states where it's officially sanctioned by the state. California, to be fair, has not officially sanctioned constitutional sheriff training. Now, that doesn't mean that California trainings are better, but it does mean that it's like not officially sanctioned. And I have seen it so it could give some idea of like what that constitutional sheriff training consists of. The issue in California is largely that while officers and, as you point out, sheriffs, deputies in California do receive training, a great deal of their training is in firearm use. Mm. So the vast majority of any training that an officer receives is in how to use their firearm. There is, again, very the amount of training dedicated toward escalation or other concerns is much lower. And so I think in all cases, not only has the trading been slow to change, it's also not particularly transparent. And there's also, we know that the issue is less like what kind of trading people are getting, but rather how they're incentivized to behave once they're on the job. One example is something like if promotions were based upon your ability to de-escalate or if you received like vacation time or reaching out to the community or, or enhancing diversity of the departments, and that might be something that would have an impact. But because these trainings sort of sit alone and then they go to work where the trainings don't seem to apply, it sort of is not, it doesn't have a big impact on anything that deputies or officers do on the street. Do you think the response to President Now, Biden, to, instead of this concept of defunding the police, he said, make no mistake about it, we need to fund the police. And so it seems that he's carried out on that promise. But do you see that funding in any way aiding in the accountability sector of what's happening in this country today, both on a local level with police departments and also what's more concerning, this county level with the, with the sheriff's departments? Yeah, I mean, what, one thing I did in researching this was I went back to look at the 1994 crime bill and what happened with that money and how it turned out, right? So one of the interesting things that I do feel like has been under-examined is that we actually know 
to some extent, what happens. <laughs> so this is not like this happened before with Biden again doing the same thing. And when you look at the analysis of the 1994 cry bill, what you see is that, first of all, the money didn't go to where they said it would go. And the funding, and this is sort of federal funding, is usually set on like a five-year level. So they took a look at like what happened over those five years, and one, they found the money didn't do what they said it would do. So it sort of failed on its own premise. That two, the money didn't go to places that might have greater need. So for example, additional officers did not go to places that needed additional officers. They went to other, right? So there was no linking of like need to recipients. Mm -hmm. And then three, that there was no indication that anything they did actually made anyone safer. We know from the 1994 crime bill that the only thing we know for sure that happened was that sentences got longer and that more people were put on death row. So those were sort of like the net results. The crime bill is not attached to like, you know, anything positive in policing. And so I do think that given that we already know what happened, it's very hard to look at this plan and think it will be anything different. Mm-hmm. I think as many people point out, it does promise, you know, it is does feel like pandering to the sort of people who are very upset by the, you know, quote, defund the police. Uh, slogan, and this has been a movement we see both with Democrats and Republicans, very much a bipartisan movement to push back against ideas of reducing the size of departments, partially in response to what is perceived as like an increase in crime. And I think, in my view, partially also as a response to detract from other failures of the government that we see sort of ongoing at the federal level. And speaking about the federal level, do you have any impressions you might want to share on what happened on the Breonna Taylor scenario where we're hearing this now becoming a federal issue? I think it's good when the Department of Justice decides to intervene. I, I mean, look, overall, the Department of Justice is largely there to ensure that local officers do their job, right? And so I've talked to people who work in the divisions that make sure that law enforcement officers fulfill civil rights. We do know that in the past consent decrees, while they don't, and a consent decree, just so people know who are listening, is kind of more of a list of reforms that the Department of Justice often goes and presents a list of reforms that a police department must do, and then they track those reforms. So there is like a both measure and then a sort of accountability measure. The Department of Justice makes sure that these reforms are completed. I do think that there's value to that. Like it does show that the government takes it seriously. I also think the concern at least in the case of Breonna Taylor, it does feel like too little too late. Mm -hmm. I do think it's a shame when someone has died and someone's family has had to cope with loss and communities have suffered and the Department of Justice comes in a few years later and, you know, offers to look into it. Overall, I think it's a good thing. It's better than not. However, I wish that people could think of these types of actions as more proactive than reactive. You know, we don't want to wait until something terrible happens before we change the way policing happens. The issue, though, with this becoming a federal case only further underscores the fact that politics and political will really matters. 
And I think that that part of the, the holding back on having the DOJ or the Attorney General get involved in something like this is, it only underscores who is in political power to make those things happen. What side of the aisle are those political appointees and how does that affect things? And I think that goes on certainly to the, the Supreme Court levels. Well, if- I think it's a great point. Like, as we all know that under Trump, all consent decrees were ending and there were no such DOJ investigations. So mm-hmm. yes, you could go from some to zero very quickly. Do you think, because we do know that many of the county sheriffs and those who are in the military and those who are retired military and some police force and In fact, we're seeing things go all the way up to Secret Service and other federal agents are somehow maybe involved in the insurrection. What is your thinking about some of this and how should this be affecting our view on policing in America? I think that for a long time, and there's actually a a great historian who has already looked at sort of the rise of uh, right-wing movement in the military So I think the connection between the far right and ex-military has been pretty well established throughout history. So there's a historian I recommend, her name is Kathleen Ballou, and she wrote a great story about, it's a book called Bring the War Home. And it's a story that connects the white power movement to veterans and uh, returning veterans, mostly a lot of them Vietnam War veterans. And so she talks quite a little about why that happened. I do think that one of the changes we're seeing right now is that, and possibly both because people who go into law enforcement tend to be ex-military, also the law enforcement departments are becoming more militarized, so in some ways they are more like the military, that that same militia-minded tendency to side with white power movements is growing. One of the things that is coming up that does seem to be notable enough to take note of is that most city police chiefs are not generally involved in white power movements. Some are, like I could think of, you know, Vallejo is a specific example in California, although there are often line officers of police, both police and sheriff departments are often, you seem to be involved in these movements. One thing that we do see though is that because sheriffs are elected, as you point out, there's a different political incentive there are sheriffs who are more aligned with white power and militia-style movements. So while we don't see that in city police chiefs very much, we do see it much more often with elected sheriffs. And there might be different reasons for this, and as you point out, that some of this is probably it's very much connected to politics, but I do think it's concerning enough. There's been a lot of talk now about people who are I think very far right aligned. They're they're elect you know sort of election deniers, pro militia groups, people getting elected on the local level, so county and state level, and that includes sheriffs, right? Mm. So we do see this like upswell of people entering political office who we know are more deeply radicalized than we have seen. So I think that's different. In some ways, because, you know, when we had the, I think when people think of the white power movements of the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of veterans, but they were not particularly in political power. But now we see those, you know, similar people with the same radical ideas now being elected into office. It seems to be concerning. That's a big issue. And now that we have federal involvement, and maybe we'll see more of that federal involvement, do you think that there's any teeth in that? 
when a president can offer pardons later uh, later on down the line or during the time. I mean, we're going to see some results of the January 6th scenario, but that doesn't guarantee that we'll always see a, a Democratic president necessarily. That's right. I mean, that's a good point. I, I'm generally of a mind that some accountability, like, accountability on all levels is good thing. So, for example, you could also have state accountability through the state attorney general, in which case the president cannot pardon. So, for example, if California decided, you know, the attorney general of California decided to conduct independent investigations and these people were indicted, they would not be eligible for pardons, even if a new president was elected. That's really critical. That's the first time I've heard that. Uh, I hope you're going to be talking about that in your publication, because this is something I think, certainly I was not aware of that, and that's a very important mechanism to all of this. I mean, even in terms of the Constitution of the United States, where if someone participates in an insurrection, uh, they cannot be an elected, and they can't even run for election, according to Amendment 14, Article C. So this is a really critical strategic point. And I'm hoping you're going to write something in. What is that publication that you put out there? Oh, Posse Comotatis. Yes. And how do people subscribe to that? So the website for it, it's a substack. It's sheriff.substack.com. And how can they find out more about you? I have a website. It's jessicapishko.com. And I'm also generally on Twitter, which is jesspish. So J-E-S-S-P-I-S-H on Twitter. Well, I want to thank you for being our guest today. It's always important to hear from you. You have discovered something I'm going to be talking about to many people, and I hope you write more about that in your next writing, Jessica. And thank you again for being with us here on Outspoken with Joy Silver, Radio 111. Stand up, fight back, because this is what democracy looks like. 